You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. And now we turn to God's Word as the pinnacle of our service, the the highlight to be sitting under what he has revealed to his people uh, so that we can grow in his likeness and that we can grow in our worship and adoration of the Son, Jesus Christ. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 here this morning. If you don't have a Bible in your hands, we'd love to bring one to you. Just put your hand up. The ushers will bring one to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want you to have God's Word. Take that home as a gift from redemption to you. And, uh, and that is yours. We're in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 17 here this morning. Well, as we open up our Bibles, let me ask you this question. If you could choose the ideal life, what would that life look like? Like, let's just say genies were real and they could grant you every wish that you desire. What kind of life would you wish for? What kind of life would truly make you happy, right? If you could start it all again and choose the ideal, perfect place to live, right? Any place, any time across the entire globe, even thinking throughout all of history, where and when would you want to live? What would that perfect place and time be? And then along with that, let's say you could also choose the most ideal occupation or thing to be filling your life with, what would you choose to be that fulfilling, satisfying thing to to fill your life with, a thing that would bring you joy and happiness? What would you be doing with your life? And then if you could choose just one person to share your life with, one person to know and to love and, and to be in relationship with until your dying days, who would you choose to spend your ideal life with, like anybody. Friends, what would the ideal, fulfilling, perfect life look like? Would it be the life of the rich and famous, like, like floating on a 120-foot yacht on the Mediterranean, right? Endless amounts of money to spend, all kinds of amazing food to eat, all kinds of really fun, crazy, uh, enjoyable people to be around, glamorous friends. Is, is that the ideal life? Friends, when it comes to how we define the ideal life, the where, the when, the how, and with, with who we spend our life with, as subjective as each of us may try to define that right in our natural selves, the book of Genesis, and particularly the the creation of man in the garden in chapter 2, tells us how God defines the ideal life for us the life that he desires for us, the life that he designed for us. Friends, as much as we can try to dream up the most ideal life, God already did that for us, and it's contained in the scriptures. And so today we're going to see the ideal life according to the creator of the universe, according to the creator of life. And so as we have already spent much time in chapter one, we've been you know, witnessing God's miraculous power as he's creating the whole universe in six days, we've, we've witnessed his divine knowledge and his wisdom as he creates everything by just speaking it into existence, and it was so, 
and as he sees it as good. And then as last week, we, we learned about what it means to, to, for God to rest on that seventh day and then how we can apply that to our lives today. As we turn uh, to verse 4 in chapter 2, we see a major turn here in, in the narrative. When we read in verse 4, where it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. As chapter 1 began with, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then as chapter 1 really closes in chapter 2, verse 1, right where he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. As we see God then now returning to this heavens and earth language, and particularly with these words, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. What God is doing here is he's doing kind of like what we used to do in the 80s when you had the old VHS, right? When you, you press the pause button and then you press the rewind button just for a little bit. You don't want to go too far. And he takes us back into the creation account again. He takes us to day six and he presses the pause button there on day six like we used to do. You could press pause and play really quick to kind of slow things down. And that's what he's doing. He's slowing us down here in order to zoom in to the details of the creation of man in order to show us, show us more specifically how he did it and also to show us more about what we were created for. And he's going to show us the ideal life according to God. And so starting in verse 4, we're going to go down to verse 17. And the word of God says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedalium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy, inspired word, we approach it as fully sufficient, fully inerrant, always true, and giving us exactly what we need 
for life and godliness. And so we as your people, we open your word in order to hear from you. God, we, we, we look to your word as, as hearing the very voice of God speaking to your people so that you may grow us in holiness, that you may continually point us to your son, and that you would elevate us in, in, in the sense of being drawn into your throne room of grace to worship you, to adore you, to be fully satisfied in our God, our creator. And so as we look back to chapter two, as we look back to, to the sixth day of creation of you creating us, may you just teach us what this means, how this applies to our life, and how this renews our minds in order to be conformed, not to this world, but to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. <coughs> well, as we look at how God created us and for what he created us, what we're seeing here is the ideal life according to God, according to the God who created life. This is the ideal life as recorded that was created before the fall. This is the life that God desires for us, and this is the life that God designed for us. And today we're going to see three aspects of that ideal life that still powerfully inform what our life is to be like today. That we're, that we're number one, we're created for relationship with God. That number two, we are created for a responsibility to God. And thirdly, that we are created for reverence of God. And so starting in the text here in verse four to seven, we see first here that we are created for relationship. To be human is to have relationship. But according to God, specifically as he created us, he particularly creates Adam before the fall. He creates him for personal relationship with himself. We have been created for personal relationship with God. Verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heaven or made the earth and the heavens. So friends, as I mentioned already, that this statement here, this, this generations statement here, is a major shift in the narrative of God here in Genesis. As, and you're gonna see this throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. You're gonna see that all the major shifts of the narrative from here on out in Genesis are going to be introduced by this same formula. Just look at a diagram I have here. If you have an ESV study Bible, they have this diagram in there as well. But you see here, it starts in, in chapter 2, verse 4, where we are, where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. But then we also see, when, when the Bible's speaking about Adam's descendants, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. We also see this in chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, these are the generations of Noah. Then chapter 10, verse 1, Noah's sons. Then in chapter 11, verse 10, we have the generations of Shem, and then on to the generations of Terah, Abraham's father, right? And then it goes through the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, the generations of Esau and Jacob in chapter 37. So as we're seeing this generations of language here, it's being used again to speak of the foundations, to speak of the, our beginnings, that Genesis is a historical record 
of the generations of mankind and specifically the generations of the seed of blessing that we're going to learn about later in chapter 3. And we see here that it, it specifically speaks about key figures in biblical history and it speaks about their progeny. But what we see here in this first example of this is, is quite interesting because when it comes to Adam and Eve, it says that they are the generations of the heavens and the earth, right? They don't have any earthly parents. There are no humans before them. No, as God said, right, in, in, in day six, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them, right? Male and female, he created them. What was before them was only God and his creation. Right? The Bible doesn't say that these are, when it comes to Adam and Eve, these are the generations of the apes, right? God didn't come along after like 65 million years of waiting for ape intelligence to finally arrive to some kind of human intelligence. No, he created humanity distinctly in his image and he started with creating humans as humans, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. There is no people before them, just God and his creation. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to tell us exactly how he created mankind. Specifically today, we're going to be looking at the creation of Adam. So again, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, and you need, you need to pay attention to that title there, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now let me ask you, what has also changed here in the text? If you're going to compare to chapter 1, just think about the name of God being used in chapter 1. When we get to chapter 2, what has changed when it comes to his name? Instead of just God... Now we see Moses, as he's writing here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, using the title, the Lord God. In chapter 1, the name of God being used was just always Elohim, God. But now as we speak about the generations of the heavens and the earth, the Bible now shifts to introduce God as the Lord God. So why do you think that is? What's going on here? Well, as you and I may not initially catch that significance as we're reading through the text, the original audience would have picked that up right away. The Israelites in the wilderness with Moses, they would have immediately known what's going on here. As Elohim speaks very generically as the person of God, Elohim is also used uh, for other nations and other pagan understandings of God. They would, they would call it just generically God. But the use of the word Lord here, and, and if you notice in your Bibles, it's capitalized often. I think the ESV, NASB does that. They capitalize the word Lord. That means that it's a very significant thing going on here. When it comes to the true and living God of the Hebrew people, this name Lord in your Bibles represents the very personal covenant name of God. As Elohim, again, is just a generic title, the Lord is personal. In the Hebrew language, this name is captured by four consonants. We have it here. Four consonants, Yod, He, Vav, He. And this is translated or transliterated as a YHWH in the English. 
And then if you put some vowels in between there, that's where we get uh, the, the, the word Yahweh, where we can actually say it, right? It, it, it actually is the unspeakable name of God in the Hebrew language because it's the holy name of God. In fact, whenever a Hebrew scribe would copy the scriptures, whenever they would write the name Yahweh, they would break their quill and get a new one because it was that holy. And when you combine the holy name of God that the Israelites knew so well, and then you combine that with the, 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 the name Elohim, God is confirming to his people that he is not only the God who keeps covenant with them forever, but he's also the God who created them. That this creator God is also intimately, relationally connected to his people. And so as God is rewinding the tape after seven days of creation, and then he zooms into the details on day six, he's about to show specifically how Adam is made and then how in his creation that is connected to God's covenant name. And it speaks of personal relationship. Friends, not only did God create you, but God intends to relate to you and you to him. Yahweh Elohim. That's what he's all about. And then as the text goes on, he gives us the details of how he created Adam. In verse 5 it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God, right, Yahweh Elohim, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so again, here we are back on day six to the point just before God creates Adam and the text reveals that there is no bush of the field yet in the land. There is no small plant of the field has yet sprung up. So the question naturally arises, I thought God already created the plants and the vegetation on day three. Well, if that's true, then what's going on here on day six? Is, is this already some kind of contradiction in the Bible? Well, absolutely not. No, as God is setting the scene for the Garden of Eden, this emphasis on the land is speaking about a specific place where God is going to plant a garden, where God is going to himself plant a garden, but before he plants it, it's empty. There's no bushes, and there is no, no small plants yet. When you think about it, think about an open field. In fact, when you see the word bush there and small plant, what do you see as a qualifying word with that? It says no bush of the field, no small plant of the field. God's speaking about a special place a place where he is about to create a special home for his people. It's a place where there was already water. We see here that there's a mist going up and it's, and it's watering the whole face of the ground, but yet there was no rain yet, just a mist. And also the text says there was no man to work the ground yet. And then verse seven says, then the Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, unlike all the universe and the plants and the animals before him, where God just merely speaks them into existence, right? Let there be, let there be, 
What we see here is God anthropomorphically, like rolling up his sleeves, kind of, getting his hands dirty, taking the dust, taking the earth, literally taking lumps of dirt and very personally and intimately forming the very first man. Right? We see God here shaping and forming the first man with all of his beautiful, incredible intricacies. Right? Just think about the details of DNA and, and bone structure and muscle structure and his nervous system and his respiratory system. All of it is intimately formed by Yahweh Elohim. This is a very personal, relational creator God at work forming the climax of his creation. In fact, the, the word formed here in the Hebrew is the word yasar, and it speaks of God as being like that of a potter. One who would take the dirt and the water and to, to put it together and to make clay and then to turn it and to shape it and to form it in his hands until the final form, the final perfect masterpiece is finished. And that masterpiece is Adam. Adam. Which in the Hebrew, the name Adam literally means lumps of dirt. Adam from Adama. There's a play on words going on here. Lumps of dirt, Adam from lumps of dirt. The man who like the universe, has formed, but also, like the universe, needs to be filled. And that's what we see next. It's not enough that Adam is merely a form. No, Adam needs to be filled. To which God, then even more so personally, more so personally than just forming with his hands, now stoops down to breathe his very breath of spiritual life into his creation. The text says... He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Friends, it wasn't enough that man was to be made just like the animals, right? You know, as they were made from the ground, it says in verse 19. No, as man was created from the ground, he was created also to be created in the image of the eternal God. And that meant that God himself had to breathe his very breath into him. He didn't breathe the breath into the animals. He breathed that into man. That's his likeness breath. That's his God-imaging breath. The very breath of God that creates the soul, creates the spirit of man, unique from animals, unique likeness, like no other created thing. And then the man became a living creature. A living creature created in the image of God to reflect his likeness and his image into the world and back to God. Friends, this is how it all began. It wasn't a series of natural mistakes and failures over billions of years. It wasn't God just kind of finding that really smart ape and then breathing life into him. No, this is intentional, personal, hands-on, lips-on, breathing in, forming and filling by God himself. Friends, the, the creation of man is so astronomically personal and so focused and so intimate. Why? Because the Lord God, because Yahweh Elohim is a covenant-keeping God. We have been created for personal, intimate relationship 
with God. This is covenant relationship. This is God dwelling with man, man dwelling with God. Such love, such intention, and such a sharing of God himself to his people. It's incredible to think about that. God creating us from lumps of dirt and sharing himself with us. Friends, you're more than just an animal. You're, you're more than just a bag of bones. You, no, you as a human are the image of God living by the breath of God, for the ultimate purpose of a personal relationship with God. If someone were to ask you what your primary purpose is in this world, right, that question of who you are, what you're all about, why you get up in the morning, what would your answer be? Would it be your personal relationship with the living God? Or would it be something else? If I were to phone up your best friend or your spouse or your parent and ask them, when it comes to so-and-so, what do they love the most? What gets them excited? What defines them? What's the main thing that that person is all about? What are they known for? Would it be your relationship with your God over all things? That you're just so blown away by the creator of the universe and that he wants to know you and have a relationship with you, that he is everything, that he is the very breath in your lungs that that moves you, that animates you, that your life is all about getting to know him more and more, right? That a day in his courts is, is worth a thousand anywhere else. And that he is the God that despite all of my sin and my wandering, he keeps his loving covenant with me. And that I just can't get enough of him. Is that what your spouse, your parent, your brother, your sister, your friend, is that what they would share about your main thing? What gets you going? What gets you up in the morning? Or would it be something else? Friends, you weren't created to find your ideal life in the things of this world No, by God's very personal, relational creation of us, what he's telling us is that he created us for him. That he is here for us, and we will only find our fullest joy and love and satisfaction in our covenant relationship with him. He gives himself fully to us. He reveals himself sufficiently to us. He he pours out his grace and his mercy to us. And he loves to have a relationship with you. And the very purpose and core of your life is to reciprocate that relationship. To love him. To live for him. To worship him. For the Israelites who were with Moses... As they are hearing from the book of Genesis about this Lord God, this Yahweh Elohim, uh, it's meant to remind them that this God who is saving him, this God that is taking them to the land of promise, that his purpose for them in the wilderness is to continue in his covenant relationship with them. That although the world may leave them, he is never going to leave them. He is never going to forsake them. Even when they go astray, just as Adam and Eve went astray, he's a God that pursues, and he pursues to love, to discipline, to forgive, to save. 
in order to bring them back in to that communion once again. These, these people in the, in the wilderness, they needed to hear it. Right, as we said before, God would refer to them as stiff-necked donkeys. They were always wanting to go their own way. They were creating golden calves, but yet God pursues them to have a covenant-saving relationship with him. And let me ask you, is that the greatest thing that defines you? That Yahweh Elohim would stoop to love you and to be in relationship with you. And as the text goes on here in verse 8, we see that as there was no bush of the field, as there was no small plant yet in the piece of land that's going to become this garden, and as there is now a created man to work the ground, verse 8 says, and the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good but daily and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God, Yahweh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. Brothers and sisters, as man was formed and breathed in into personal relationship with God, he is also created for a working responsibility to God. The text reveals here that when it came to the garden that, this, that God was planting, and as Adam was formed to work it, he was formed to keep it, to work it and keep it. Friends, as vital as relationship as it is to be human, so too is work so vital for what it means to be a human. We were never meant to be mere passive recipients of God's good creation. No, we were created to be active participants in his good creation. And particularly on display here, in this special place in the east called Eden. The Garden of Eden. A garden, as the text says, was planted by God himself. So not only does God personally form and fill Adam, he also personally forms and fills an, a special home for Adam. He creates a garden where there was once barrenness. And the text says that he plants it himself. And then he puts Adam in it. To which God then causes to flourish with the best pleasing trees full of food for Adam. And then we also see that he plants two trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're gonna to get to the significance of these two trees here later. We're gonna come back to that. But we see here that he provides a source of water. You need water for life. There was a mess, but we need a, we need a big source of water for this kind of a garden. Verse 10 a river flowed out of Eden to do what? To water the garden. So just think of the mist rising, which has now become 
a mighty river. Think of it as a mighty headwaters, right? The waters of Eden. Think of endless amounts of water for life, which then flows out of Eden. And the text says it is divided into four rivers. So we've got Eden as the headwaters. In fact, the name Eden means many waters. And in that, one river is splitting into four rivers, which then they have names, which, which somewhat helps us to understand where all of this took place, or so we think. The, the first two rivers are unknown, while the others are known. The name of the first is the Pishon. Pishon, the meaning of that name just means to break loose or to gush. It's the one that flowed around the land of Havilah. Uh, as Moses is telling about this river, he mentions the name Havilah, Havilah is known by his people. Uh, it's known as the land of one of Abraham's offspring. Uh, and it, they settled somewhere in southern Arabia. It's also known as a place that is, as they mention here in the text, such a place for valuable elements. We read of gold, we read of uh, bedelium, we read of onyx. And interesting enough, as we're going to learn uh, in the text, is that these elements are going to be used in the worship of God. They're going to be used in the construction of the tabernacle as well as the temple. The name of the second river is the Gihon. Again, Gihon is not known uh, archaeologically, but again, Gihon's root word means to break loose. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Cush is normally understood as a land in North Africa, close to Egypt, a part of the Nile system. The third river is the Tigris. We know where that is if you look at the map. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Both of these are very mighty rivers, well known today. So as far as the location of Eden in the world, we can definitely say it's somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere connected to the Tigris and the Euphrates, but as, as these are some of the longest rivers in the world, exactly where Eden was, we're not quite sure. There's a couple suggestions there. Two possible places. But nonetheless, it's really not about finding these places, but about the significant significance that's going on in the garden. As verse 15 says, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. God didn't put Adam in the garden to just kind of mope around as a freeloader, Right? to just kind of just receive all the falling fruit. No, the text says he put him there to do what? To work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Right, as we learned already on day six in Genesis one, how image bearers are to take dominion, right? <clears throat> as God places his first image bearer in the garden, he was to take dominion of the garden, right? This wasn't just to be a wild place of unkept foliage, Right, for, the, for the garden to rule, but it's a place for man to rule. It's a place where God places Adam to work and to keep order. And so it's about cultivation. This garden wouldn't be like our imaginations often go to, like a wild jungle with Tarzan and Jane. No, this garden would have been the most ordered garden. The connotations here uh, speak about agricultural order. Adam was to be a farmer, and he was to work and to serve and to keep, which means to guard it. As verse 5 spoke about there being no bush or plant in the field, 
Why was there no bush or plant in the field? Well, that was because God didn't cause it to rain yet and because there was no man to work the ground. Like Water alone wasn't enough to produce Eden. And tilling enough isn't enough to produce Eden on its own. It has to work together, and this is all God's good design. Working out of his covenant relationship with man, God chooses to partner with man in the cultivation of this garden, right? And so man's responsibility is to work it and to guard it. And God's responsibility was to plant it and to water it. This covenant relationship practically at work and this garden would have been the most incredible thing you've ever seen. If anybody's ever been to the Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, you know, you're just blown away by the beauty and the colors. It's all incredibly organized, put together so beautifully. This plant works with this plant, this flower with that flower. Now what if that Bouchard family was to just let that garden go, to not work it and to not keep it? How would it look? No, just think about how beautiful and lush this garden would have been in all of its organized order according to God's plan through the work of man. There is a co-laboring going on here. As God works, so Adam works. And so friends, let me tell you, or let me ask you, when you're thinking about the ideal life, sometimes we don't think about the ideal life involving work, if we're really honest, right? Right, everybody's working for what? Everybody's working for the weekend, right? We don't want to work. We want to we win the lottery so we don't have to work any longer. We can't wait to retire so that we don't have to work. But let me ask you, as we think about the ideal life, the ideal perfect life, being with God in the garden, is the ideal life all about the absence of work, doing nothing, Sitting back, just kind of soaking it all up. No. No, according to God, it isn't. Right? As last week in verses 1 to 3, we talked about the necessity of a Sabbath rest. If you remember what the Sabbath law actually said in Exodus 20, verse 8 to 9, it says, remember the Sabbath day. We have to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then it also says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Friends, the Garden of Eden wasn't just one big handout. It wasn't a place for freeloading. It wasn't like a cruise ship where Adam was just served by God day and night. No, the ideal life as prescribed in the garden is a life where there is work. Work is a central part of our image bearing. Where work is central to your good, work is also central to worship. Friends, work is good. Work is godly. You have been created for a working responsibility to God. Friends, work is not evil, as you may be tempted to think it is. Work is not a curse, right? This, this is put in place before the fall. Yes, the fall, when the fall comes, work gets harder with all of its weeds and thorns for sure, but, but work is good. Because what we see here in the garden in paradise is Adam working and being commanded to work. Why? Because God himself is a working God. 
right? Six days, God worked, and then he rested. And if we are to be reflectors of who he is, then we work, right? And his work didn't stop. He's working even now. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Even though he rested on the seventh day, right now, he is holding all of this together. He is sustaining all of this. He is governing the universe. Even as Jesus himself was accused of breaking the Sabbath law, Jesus answered the Pharisees, says, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working Friends, the life of an image bearer, a life of godliness, is a life of working responsibility to God. That even though we sinned against God and we were cast out into the garden, the goodness of work continues. This is a part of what it means to be an image bearing a reflector of God right now, a Christian. Right? Last week I mentioned that some of us need to work less, right, to honor the Sabbath rest, and that's that's true. Some of us really need to make more room for God. But with that, I would also say that some of us need to repent and see work as God sees work. Right? Giving ourselves to what God has designed for good. Right? The Proverbs often warn us about idleness. Proverbs 6.10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man, right? God designed work to be the means by which we sustain ourselves. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Husbands and fathers, especially when it comes to your family, God has designed you to be the provider of your home, to provide the sustenance of your home, primarily that is on you. You are to be the main breadwinner of your home for your families. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you see how work is connected to what we believe. The scriptures are pretty clear that how we approach work reveals what we are believing in. So friends, we need to embrace work as good and godly. So that means instead of complaining, we're thankful for our jobs. We're grateful for our jobs, no matter how hard they are, no matter how monotonous it is, no matter how stressful it is, no matter how boring your job is. This changes the way that we approach work. You know, I remember when one guy among us who just graduated as a chemical engineer was having a, a tough time trying to find a job in his, in his training. Right? Jobs were really non-existent in that field. But that guy among us, he, he didn't lay around. He didn't seek social assistance until his dream job came up. No, he pounded the streets, and then he gladly went to work at McDonald's. Right? Not the most glamorous of jobs, but he made the most of it. He's working as unto the Lord. He was working heartily uh, for the Lord rather than for men, right? And he knows who he is. Now he has an engineering job. That's awesome. 
There's others among us who had to, who's had to work kind of menial jobs that doesn't match their qualifications. A lot of our international people come over with all kinds of degrees, but they can't work those degrees here. And so they take a job that might seem lowly, but they do it gladly for the glory of God. So as the first job description here of the first man was to be a farmer, right? farming can also seem to be a lowly menial task. From what I know and my very small experiences, farming is one of the hardest, most dedicated jobs. You've got to get up before dawn. You're often going to bed after it's dark. You're working with your hands. It is tough work. I mean, Kim and I just planted a garden in our backyard yesterday, and, and both of us are sore and absolutely played out, just from a little garden in the backyard. Perhaps in your job, your career, your responsibilities of doing the things that aren't that desirable, remember that God has called you to work. Perhaps you need a recalibration on this. Friends, we need to stop viewing work as like Pharaoh's evil necessity, but a, but a blessing and a privilege. As this created universe was constructed to be a great cosmic temple for God, and as the garden was meant to be the center focus of that worship, it was to be a temple for God. It was to be a working temple. In fact, when they build the tabernacle later, and when they build the temple, the priests that would work for the temple and in the temple, their job definition is the same as it is here. They are to work it, and they are to keep it. We were created for a working responsibility to God. Now, as I mentioned that we're going to come back to those two trees from verse 9, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, these two trees most likely stood side by side in the garden. One tree, the tree of life, as a representation of God's living presence, and the other representing God's knowledge, the knowledge of the heavenly. As the tree of life speaks about how God is the source and the creator and the sustainer of life in the universe, and as Adam is free to eat of all of the trees, he is prohibited to eat of this one tree, this tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 6, and the Lord God, again, Yahweh Elohim, right, the covenant-keeping creator God commanded the man, Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So all the trees, every tree except one. We see a per permission for many, but we see a prohibition of one. And really, when it comes down to it, as you picture these two trees standing side by side, it was really, which one do you choose? Do you choose life, or do you choose death? Now, God doesn't leave mankind hanging. He doesn't say, well, it's just a 50-50 thing, take your chances, it's up to you. No, he clearly commands Adam to eat of every other tree but this one. Choose life, not death. Don't choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it. Friends, this is the first negative command. You shall not 
eat of it. Why? Well, God gives the clearest answer. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, meaning that you will be doomed to death. Right? Like, I have given you everything, perfectly everything. Just don't eat of that one tree. As we were created and blessed and placed within the very garden and presence of the life of God, all we had was one prohibition, don't eat of that one, not that one. Friends, we were created for an obedient reverence for God. The ideal perfect life in the garden, the ideal perfect model life for us right now is not a life where we just get to do what we want. It's not a life where I just make all of my own choices. The ideal life, friends, has guardrails. God's guardrails given by him for our good. When God says yes to so much life-giving things for us, he also says no to life-taking things. Friends, God says no out of love, out of love for you, for your good. It's like when you have a little toddler You don't turn the stove on and just say, well, they're going to figure it out. You know, they'll figure it out when they touch it. No, God says no. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Right? One garden, two trees, and only one right choice according to God. He says here, obey me. I am God. I am the one who has all the knowledge of good and evil. I know what's God or what's good and what isn't. Listen to me. Obey me. Now, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the first indication in the scriptures that there are two opposing realities in the world good and evil. In a world today that wants to blur these lines, what God does in the garden is he clearly reveals that there is a knowledge, and it is a divine, absolute knowledge of what's good and what's evil. Now, Adam doesn't have this knowledge yet, but he's merely informed of it, and friends, that is enough. But yet he was commanded against it as well. He was commanded in it to trust Yahweh, Elohim, that as he created all of this goodness to share with Adam, this is the knowledge that he wasn't going to share with him. Because this is knowledge that was not good for him. Now what is this knowledge? Some scholars guess that this knowledge might be sexual knowledge, right? As the first uh, curse of sin or the the first result of sin is that there is shame regarding nakedness and, and sexuality. Uh, I don't think that really makes sense because uh, Eve is not even created yet. Some wonder if this is just omniscience, right? If he's going to eat of the tree, he's going to be all-knowing like God, but that doesn't really make sense either. This is knowledge that the human mind could not handle. Now, when it comes to the tree of the knowledge of good and, and evil, it's, it's really just laying the groundwork for what's going to happen in chapter 3. 
The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil speaks about man's natural desire for moral autonomy. Man desiring his own power to decide for himself what's good and what's right, not God, for what man thinks is his best interests or not. Really, it comes down to man trying to be God and to act like God, to reject God, and to make his own way, to choose his own way. As chapter 3, verse 22 uh, shows us that after eating of the fruit, God then banishes Adam and Eve from the garden because in eating of it, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, right? We want to elevate ourselves naturally to be like God. And this, friends, is our perpetual problem. This is our deadly disposition. And this is just some foreshadowing on that. As God gave Adam everything else but one tree, friends, you and I don't like to be told what to do. We don't want to be ruled. We want to be the ones who make the decisions, not God. And then when you combine that with the, the whispers of a tempting evil serpent who comes and who twists what God commanded, and he says, you will not surely die he says to Eve in Genesis 3, 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan goes after the very good character of God and he targets the very innate human desire to want to be God. Friends, that's our problem. That's my problem. That's your problem. I want to be God. You want to be God. But friends, the ideal life is not about trying to be God, right? The ideal life is to be falling under the obedience of God, his good command to us, right? The scriptures say, in Adam all die, right? Without God, we all die. Friends, the ideal life is not a life that leads to death. The ideal life is not about us being captains of our own destiny, right? you determining what's right and wrong. No, the ideal life is about falling under the good command and will of God for you. Right? He is the God of all knowledge of good and evil. He knows what's best. He knows what path leads to life and what path leads to death. We are called to listen to him, to obey him, and to love him. Friends, that is the ideal life. As the Israelites were the first to hear this, they were also receiving the law of God. They were receiving, they were receiving a law of the knowledge of good and even of evil. They were receiving the good law. The law that showed them the character of God. The law that showed them how to honor and love him and how to honor and love one another. And friends, sometimes when we look at the laws of God, the commands of God, we initially think, oh, that's just too hard. That's just too harsh. Those laws just take away, you know, all my fun. Right? Like the Israelites. And like Adam. We want to rule ourselves. But friends, God does not give us commands to take away good things. No, he gives us commands so that we can have the good thing. He wants to keep us from evil. He wants to keep us for him. 
He wants us to receive what is good for us, right? What is good, what is right, what is godly, and what is worshipful to him. Like Jesus said, if you love me, keep my what? Keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. That's this covenant, Elohim, Yahweh, humanity, relationship. But yet, as we know the rest of the story, mankind wanted to be God. We wanted our own way. And so we ate of the forbidden fruit. And the repercussions for it all was banishment from the garden, banishment from the ideal life, banishment from the very personal presence of God. And friends, all of life since then, and I would say by the grace of God, is about a pursuit to return to the garden. That's what life needs to be about. But the truth is, is that we couldn't do it. God had to do it for us. Try and try as we might, we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot make our way back to the garden when Adam and Eve were were sent out of the garden. There was an angel put at the gate. You cannot come back. But even in that, by the grace of God, he comes and pursues us. He sends his son. He sends Jesus, right? Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence with us. We couldn't get back to the very presence of God in the garden. His presence had to come and pursue us. And his presence did pursue us in Jesus Christ. As he came and he lived that perfect life that we could not live. And he died the death that each one of us deserve. And as he was raised to life for our justification, he brought us back into the presence of God. But friends, as he has returned to to heaven, he is also coming back because there is an even greater presence yet to come. There is an even greater presence yet to come in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. As Jesus is gonna come back, he's gonna judge the living and the dead. He's gonna judge Satan. He's gonna judge the demons. He's gonna judge the unrighteous. And he is even gonna judge this heavens and earth that God created because we have stained it so thoroughly because of our sin, it needs to be made new. And he's gonna make all things new. And there's gonna be a new heavens and there's gonna be a new earth where God's presence is gonna dwell with man. It's going to be the new garden of Eden. Revelation 21 speaks about this, John's vision of the heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, 1 to 5, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And if you go down to Revelation 22, 1 to 5, it says, 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Think about that river coming out of Eden. This river bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Notice one tree. No more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The leaves of the tree were to be for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The ideal life is yet to come. We have a small taste of what it is right now, especially in the gathering of the saints, being filled by the Spirit, having his word. This is a small taste of heaven, the future Garden of Eden, but we long for the day when Christ will return and he will take us home and he's gonna make a new heavens and a new earth. And as Adam was created and put in that garden to work and keep it, it's a picture of what we're gonna be doing forever with God, worshiping him forever and ever. Created for personal relationship with God, you've been created for a working responsibility to God and created for an obedient reverence for God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you after just sitting under what you have for us by your word, we pray that it would land on fertile soil in the heart, uh, that you would uh, break open areas that need to be exposed, that you would till the soil um, as, as you planted the garden and as Adam tilled the soil and as you watered it, we, we just pray that you would be growing spiritual fruit within us as your people, that we would be beholding what we were originally designed for, this ideal life with you in your presence forever, working with you, obeying you, honoring you. Father, we can't do this on our own, and that's why you sent your son and so we are so very grateful. We worship Jesus Christ. We worship your plan from the beginning that you sent him to live for us, to die for us, to rise from the grave for us, to ascend to heaven for us, to return for us, and to take us back to be with you forever in the new heavens and the earth. Do your work on our hearts as we walk into this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.